the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. Glad to have you with us. Today we're going to talk with Chris Bruno. He is the author of Paul versus James. I mean, is that even the right way to put it? Well, what we've been missing in the faith and works debate. We'll talk with uh, Chris Bruno. That's uh, later this hour. We're also going to give away our next four pack of tickets to the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. So listen for your opportunity to win. Just a little heads up. It'll be in this first hour of today's program. First, taking a look at some of the headlines. President Trump on a, uh, made um, an attempt to unite the nation and console mourners in trips to shooting sites El Paso, Texas and Dayton, Ohio today. The big question uh, is whether Democrats who blame the president in part for the back-to-back mass shootings last weekend that left 31 people dead will let him. Well, he was allowed uh, to travel but was not uh, met with a warm welcome one might have hoped for. The president's biggest uh, skeptics argue that he helped create the environment for recent mass shootings with inflammatory, divisive, anti-immigration rhetoric for that enabled hate groups. Well, interestingly, the shooters in these two incidents were on opposite ends of the political spectrum. The thing that was the similar about the two of them is that they were loners um, and fit the profile that so many of these mass shooters um, also fit. Investigators are looking closely at the potential motives of the accused shooters in Dayton and El Paso. The president Wednesday faced a dilemma similar to the one he faced in October of 2018 when Jewish leaders urged him to stay away from the community following the shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. Still, White House officials said Trump's visit to Texas and Ohio uh, would be similar to those he paid to grieving communities in Parkland, Florida, Las Vegas, and they were. Uh, with the president and first lady thanking first responders, spending time with mourning families and survivors uh, at the hospital and elsewhere. The White House spokesman Hogan uh, Gidley said the president wants to have a conversation about ways to prevent future tragedies. President Trump is not remaining silent against some of his critics following the mass shooting in El Paso and Dayton. He fired back at 2020 presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke, who has blamed the president for the tragedies, calling him a racist and compared him to Nazis in recent days. Um, earlier t- on Tuesday, the president's 2020 reelection campaign blasted the Democratic representative Joaquin Castro, the brother and campaign chairman of 2020 presidential hopeful Julian Castro, for posting a list of prominent Texas Trump donors names and employers uh, on Twitter, accusing him of targeting private citizens and demanding he delete it. Um, how low have Democrats sunk? The president campaign communications director uh, tweeted Joaquin Castro stood by his tweet saying the donors were not targeted or harassed and accused the president's campaign officials of trying to distract from the racism that has overtaken the GOP. Now it's overtaken the whole GOP. It's not just individuals who have actually spoken. Uh, nonetheless, it turns out he targeted one of his own. We'll tell you more about that shortly. Well, Fox News contributor Lawrence Jones traveled to Chicago to ask residents there about the shootings that 
that left seven dead and 52 injured last weekend in the space of just a few hours. It was Chicago's worst weekend of gun violence this year, but it was overshadowed by the tragedies in Dayton and El Paso. Some residents speculated about why the media appeared to largely ignore the violence in the Windy City, Jones said Tuesday. He said, I think that people have gotten used to this being synonymous with Chicago. One resident said of the weekend bloodshed, they don't care. Another man told Jones, it's a race thing. They don't care. Well, Peter Strzok, the former FBI agent who wrote unflattering text messages about President Trump while investigating the Trump campaign's alleged ties to Russia, has filed a lawsuit against the Bureau and the Justice Department, arguing that the FBI caved to the unrelenting pressure of the president when it fired him and violated his free speech and right to due process. While many in law enforcement have faced attacks by this president, Ms. Peter Strzok has been a constant target for two years, says his um, uh, attorney, one of uh, one of his attorneys in a statement. It's uh, indisputable that he his termination was a result of President Trump's unrelenting retaliatory campaign of false information, attacks and direct appeals to top officials. Well, it was uh, Mr. Mueller who fired him. And there was certainly a significant evidence uh, to support that decision. Well, the next chapter of XFX's American Crime Story will dramatize Bill Clinton's impeachment with a focus on Monica Lewinsky, Linda Tripp, and other women central to that scandal. The miniseries will air within weeks of the 2020 presidential election. Monica Lewinsky, who was a White House intern when she had an affair with the former president, will be a producer on the project. FX Network CEO John Landgraf said in announcing the project at a television critics association meeting earlier this week. Clinton initially denied uh, having a relationship before admitting in 1998. The series is scheduled to air in September, about five weeks before the November 3rd election, according to the Associated Press. And on this day in 1782, General George Washington creates the Order of the Purple Heart. It's a decoration to recognize merit in enlisted men and non-commissioned officers. And on this date in 1959, the United States launches the Explorer 6 satellite, which sent back images of Earth, the first images of that kind. And on this day in 1971, the Apollo 15 moon mission ends successfully as its uh, command module splashes down in the Pacific Ocean. And on this day in history, 1998, terrorist bombs at the U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania I've heard it said both ways, in case you're wondering. Kill 224 people, including 12 Americans. Finally, on this day in history in 2000, Vice President and Democratic presidential candidate Al Gore selects Connecticut Senator Joseph Lieberman as his running mate. Lieberman becomes the first Jew on a uh, major party's presidential ticket. Well, investors jumped back into stocks on Tuesday, snapping up discounts one day after the broader equity markets registered the worst drop of 2019. The rebound came after the dust settled following the U.S. and China trading currency barbs. Late on Monday, the U.S. officially labeled China as a currency manipulator after the country devalued the yuan. The move is aimed at making China a more, well, advantageous exporter over the U.S. Apple shares um, gained after three days of heavy losses, while video game publisher Take-Two Interactive Software jumped after raising its full-year revenue forecast. After the closing bell, Dow member Disney reported profits that missed expectations as the media giant ramped up investments in digital. Shares fell in the extended trading session.
Well, the shooter who killed three people and injured 13 in Gilroy, California, on the 28th of July was exploring violent ideologies and had a target list, according to the FBI. The list included religious institutions, federal buildings, courthouses, political organizations from both major political parties, and the Gilroy Garlic Festival. FBI agent John Bennett, during a press conference, announced. He added that even though the threat appears to have been mitigated by the subject's death, the FBI has a responsibility to notify individuals and organizations of potential threats or acts of violence. They're in the process of notifying those groups. He added that the Bureau will be opening a full domestic terrorism investigation into the attack after the the discovery of the target list. The 19-year-old shooter, whom the FBI previously described as kind of a loner, killed 25-year-old Trevor Irby, 13-year-old Kayla Salazar, 6-year-old Stephen Romero before turning his AK-47 rifle onto himself at a popular food festival. The Gilroy shooting came just a week prior to two other mass shootings that took place on Sunday at the Walmart in El Paso and a bar in Dayton, Ohio. The El Paso death toll rose to 22 on Monday, and the Dayton shooting killed nine. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, we'll talk with Chris Bruno. The book is titled Paul versus James, What We've Been Missing in the Faith and Works Debate. Well, as promised, we want to give away our family four-pack of tickets to the Portland Singing Christmas Tree Performance on Friday, November 22nd. Is that right? Is that is November 22nd of Friday? Uh, anyway, Portland Singing Christmas Tree features 26 new songs. Miss America 2002, Katie Harmon, Timothy Greenwich. That's worth the price of the ticket right there. 300 Voice Choir, Cinematic Nativity, and the Jefferson Dancers. I might sing a song or two, but this is a great opportunity to win four-pack tickets to see the Portland Singing Christmas Tree Friday, November 22nd, 7.30 p.m. We want to give away this four-pack of tickets to caller number 2, 800-845-2162. 800-845-2162. Again, the second caller to the Friday, November 22nd performance of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree at the Keller Auditorium. So, yay. Looking forward to another... uh, Another great year. Now, make note of the uh, the fact that this is only two weekends, the weekend of November 22nd and then the weekend of November 29th. That includes um, Sunday, December 1st. So please make a note of it. Well, the bodies of two Canadian men suspected of killing three people last month, including an American tourist and her Australian boyfriend, are believed to have been found in Manitoba, according to police in their announcement today. The 19 and 18 year olds have been charged or had been charged with second degree murder in connection with the death of a Vancouver, B.C. man, Leonard Dyke. And were suspects in the murder of an American um, China Deese and her Australian boyfriend, Lucas Fowler, 24, 23 years, respectively. At this time, we are confident, uh, says the assistant commissioner, uh, Jane McClatchy, uh, speaking to reporters at a news conference in Winnipeg. We are confident that these are the bodies of the two suspects wanted in connection with the homicide in Homicides, plural, rather, in British Columbia. The bodies were found five days after police found several items on the banks of the Nelson River that were directly linked to the suspects. Um, McClatchy said the bodies were found less than one kilometer, that's 0.62 miles, from the items. The bodies were also found approximately 5.6 miles from where police located a burned-out vehicle 
they believe belonged to the suspects on July 22nd and approximately 2,000 miles from where the murders took place in northern British Columbia. Police discovered the uh, remains on the 15th of July along the side of the um, Alaska Highway near Laird Hot Springs. The couple had been shot to death. Police discovered... um, Uh, The other um, victim, four days later, close to where the suspect's burning truck had been found. On the 23rd of last month, authorities named the pair, the 19 and 18-year-olds, as suspects in the killings. The two managed to elude authorities amid a nationwide manhunt that involved multiple law enforcement agencies. An autopsy is scheduled in uh, Winnipeg to confirm the identity and to determine the cause of death, which is not yet known. Investigators had said uh, earlier this week... They were investigating all possibilities, including the possibility that the suspects might have drowned. But at least they have been found and more details are expected uh, sooner rather than later. Representative Ted Budd, a Republican out of North Carolina, has introduced a bill that would allow victims of crimes perpetrated by those in the country illegally to sue sanctuary cities if that is where the crimes occurred. The legislation called the Justice for Victims of Sanctuary Cities Act would allow victims of crimes uh, as long as 10 years ago to file a lawsuit against the sanctuary city where the crime occurred. Illegal immigrants with past criminal convictions made up about 74 percent of arrests by the Immigration and Customs Enforcement in 2018, according to Pew Research. I found that sanctuary cities failure to cooperate with immigration and customs enforcement, Bud said in a press release, is reckless and has had a real cost on society, both economically and in terms of human lives. Well, he offered the bill on the 25th of last month after more areas in the United States became so-called sanctuary cities, which means they will not assist the federal government with immigration enforcement. His bill would allow any victim of murder, rape, or any felony at the hands of an illegal uh, immigrant to bring a lawsuit against the state or sanctuary city if the jurisdiction, jurisdiction didn't help with an immigration detainer request from the Department of Homeland Security. The victims could sue the jurisdiction if the... Uh, uh, illegal immigrant benefited from a sanctuary policy of the sanctuary dur- jurisdiction. And another stipulation is that the victim would not have been so injured or harmed, but for the alien receiving the benefit of such sanctuary policies, the bill says. It strikes me, uh, Bud went on to say in the press release, Uh, as common sense to introduce and pursue legislation that allows families and victims recourse against municipalities and policies that have caused them so much damage. Currently, they have none. Well, uh, the uh, representative's uh, bill aims to make sanctuary cities accountable for not complying with Department of Homeland Security requests and would require state and local governments to waive immunity in order to receive certain federal grants. Some of the grants given to sanctuary cities also would be limited under the new bill, covering only public works, administrative expenses, grants for research, among others. Well, sanctuary cities include places like San Francisco, New Orleans, Newark, New Jersey, Uh, The uh, representative went on to say that uh, he was sick of hearing stories about illegal immigrants in sanctuary cities committing horrific crimes against American citizens. It's time we do something about it. He introduced the bill um, along with... uh, Uh, Representative Bradley Brine, not only will our legislation provide justice for victims, but it will public will push rather communities to abandon their reckless sanctuary policies and help uh, sensitize illegal uh, immigration. Now, the likelihood that this will succeed in the um, Democrat House, very, very low. But the point they're trying to make will at least have been made. 
Well, after two presidential debates, many breathed a sigh of relief when the DNC imposed eligibility requirements for the third that will knock half of the quasi-candidates off the stage, rather than continue to whittle candidates down as the process gets closer to the caucuses and primaries. However, the DNC's setup for an October debate will likely allow most of the bumped candidates to take an encore. Well, the deadline to qualify for the September debate is August 28th, just a little over three weeks away. To reach the stage, candidates have to get 2% in four Democratic National Committee-approved polls and have 130,000 unique donors. That's a bar that's the majority of the field has not hit and isn't on track to do so. But a DNC memo sent to all the campaigns on Monday essentially gives those candidates who miss the September debate more time to qualify for the October debate, which could very well feature more candidates, not fewer. Well, the DNC memo sets the deadline to reach the 130,000 total donors and scores at 2% in four polls until two weeks before the October debate and starts on June 28th, the same day qualification for the September debate began. Effectively, this means all the candidates who qualify for the September debate are automatically in the October debate unless they drop out of the race. Not likely. And any candidate who misses the September debate has more time to receive new donations or score 2% in the polls. How much extra time will there be? Well, no exact date has been given. For the fourth debate in the memo, but even an early October date would add more than three weeks to the qualification period that ends in late August. Meanwhile, Quinnipiac has uh, former Vice President Joe Biden with 34 percent of the support in the Democrat uh, ledger, uh, Elizabeth Warren at 21 percent. Um, Harris at 12 and Sanders at 11. Morning consult has uh, Biden at 33 percent, Sanders at 19, Warren at 15 and Harris at nine. That's morning consult. Another uh, poll uh, as well. All right. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. When we return, we're going to talk with the author of the book, Paul versus James. No, it's not a wrestling match, but it is an effort to understand if there's a contradiction or not. What we've been missing in the faith and works debate. Chris Bruno, my guest, in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 34 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Paul versus James. No, it's not a boxing match, but the book by the same name, What We've Been Missing in the Faith and Works Debate, asks the question whether or not there are irreconcilable differences between the two. Everything you never knew about the men behind the controversy. Put uh, James and Paul next to each other and some tough to answer questions will come up. Paul says we're saved by faith alone. James seems to say the opposite. What does he? Well, this book, Paul versus James, dives into the life stories of both apostles, learning more about the context of their letters and discovers the truth about the shared message they both proclaimed. My guest is Dr. Chris Bruno. He serves as assistant professor of New Testament and Greek at Bethlehem. College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He previously taught Bible and theology at Cedarville University and Northland International University and served as a pastor at Harbor Church in Honolulu, Hawaii. He and his wife, Katie, have four sons. He joins us today to talk about his book, Paul versus James, What We've Been Missing in the Faith Works Debate. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. I'm so glad to be on with you. 
Well, I so appreciate your taking this um, this subject on because there does seem to be uh, not only discomfort but uncertainty about how to address um, the what the apparent controversy, the apparent contradiction between these two apostles who contributed to the scriptures and were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Let's begin by uh, asking the question that your introduction raises: Are there irreconcilable differences between the two, or do we have uh, um, a misunderstanding about what's being said? Yeah, well, I, I absolutely agree with what you said a moment ago, in that these are both part of the inspired scriptures. They're part of holy scripture that God has given to us. And uh, not only that, when we actually read what they're saying and try to understand the, the context of their letters, both what they're arguing against and what they're arguing for, rather than seeing a contradiction, what we really have uh, with James and Paul is a remarkable harmony excuse me, and symmetry uh, in their messages. They, they hit a lot of the same notes. They might do it in a slightly different harmony, but they hit a lot of the same notes. Well, as you know, there are those historically in the church. In fact, the, this uh, James has been called the Epistle of Straw by who was it? Um, um, Martin, Luther. Martin Luther. Thank you. Uh, so yeah. there's been real confusion, even among those uh, luminaries of the faith, as to whether or not um, these two agree with one another, or that perhaps James was just mistaken in what he had to, had to say. Yes. Um, even uh, Martin Luther, as you said, called the Epistle of James a uh, epistle of straw that has nothing of the gospel about it, which sounds pretty harsh. Mm-hmm. Actually, as I was writing the book, I, I did a little more digging. And I found that, that Luther never rejected the book of James. He never said it wasn't part of Holy Scripture. He never said it wasn't part of the, the, the canon. What he did is he said uh, the gospel is not as clear in the epistle of James as it is in other books. So it's not quite as bad as it might first sound, Mm -hmm. but it's still not something that I would agree with. But uh, the funny thing is, is Luther himself in other places said things that were very similar to what we see in James chapter 2 about the the inseparability of faith and works. In his preface to his commentary on Romans, he said, uh, like light and heat, faith and works are inseparable. So uh, while Brother Martin may have uh, spoken uh, a little bit uh, out of turn, uh, at the end of the day, I I think he he would have agreed with many of the things that that we're saying today. Now, why do you think there's so much confusion about how to reconcile uh, these two contributors to the New Testament and why they are often used as an example of uh, the the Bible being um, contradictory? Yeah, well, I mean, the verses that you alluded to a moment ago, uh, Romans 3.28, Paul says, one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That seems pretty clear, justification by faith alone. Uh, but then if you read in James 2, James 2.24, says a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So uh, on the surface, that sounds pretty jarring. That sounds different. But I I think one of the keys is to understand not only the the bigger picture, that they're agreeing in the big picture of how they they put faith and works together, but then even specifically in the context of their arguments, what they're arguing for and what they're arguing against. So Paul, on the one hand, says we are not justified by works of the law. And it's these certain kind of works that somehow make us right with God, that make us a part of his people. So what he's really arguing against at the end of the day, I think, is some kind of works righteousness. 
that as we win our approval, we win our justification, we win our salvation uh, before God based on what we do. And to that argument, Paul says, no way. There's, we are justified by faith alone, through grace alone, on the basis of Christ alone. Now, now James is arguing against a different opponent. James is arguing against people who might say, um, yes, we're justified by faith alone. So I believe that Jesus is Lord. Check. And they just sign a card or make some kind of uh, empty profession of faith, or they just know the right things, or they know the right things to say. So th- this is uh, what some people call just intellectual assent. Yes, we kind of nod our head at that. But it doesn't actually transform us in any real way. This is the kind of faith that James is arguing against. So when he says justification is not by faith alone, he's not using faith the same way that Paul is. He's almost putting faith alone in like scare quotes there. We're not justified by quote unquote faith alone, the kind of faith that's just like the demons have. It's just knowing the right things, but not actually leaning on Christ as our Savior. One of the things in the first part of your book that you emphasize is the context in which uh, both James and Paul are teaching that they are addressing, as you've just pointed out, specific concerns um, that uh, emphasize or de-emphasize certain aspects of the faith. So context is important in understanding both James and Paul. And once we understand the context, we recognize that they're really on the same page, making the same point rather than uh, contradicting one another. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Their their broader context that they they shared so much. When you actually think about their whole life story and kind of zoom out that way, they shared. Uh, you know, they both grew up in Jewish homes where they learned the Old Testament. They grew up uh, reciting, no doubt, uh, the Torah, the Shema, Deuteronomy six four. But they also rejected Jesus as uh, the Messiah when they first. Uh, heard about him. So James is the brother of Jesus. Uh, The Gospel of John tells us that his brothers did not believe in him during his earthly ministry. And then we know Paul's story from the book of Acts. He persecuted the church. So different in that way, but they both rejected Jesus' claim to be the Messiah until they, they both individually had an encounter with the risen Christ that really transformed their lives. And as a result of that, they both spent the rest of their lives proclaiming the same gospel message, teaching about the fulfillment of God's covenant promises and the new covenant, teaching about the fulfillment of the law, teaching about how Christians now on this side of the the cross and resurrection are to live in obedience to God. So they they have so much in common, both in their, their early history and in their later message. And even in the book of Acts, we see times where they interacted with each other and agreed together on the gospel message. You write in the introduction, New Testament, uh, the New Testament was not written in a sterile seminary classroom. They were writing field survival guides while, while they were in the field. As we understand their backgrounds and the shared message and mission of James and Paul, we might be surprised to find how close these men were. They had a shared commitment to reaching the entire Roman Empire, the entire world with the gospel of Jesus Christ at a time. Uh, and at times they worked closely together to devise a strategy for this mission. So uh, understanding the whole sweep of Scripture, the context in which each of these men uh, ministered will help us understand their intent and the audience to whom they are speaking. Yes, that's correct. So, I mean, as as, a, as I was mentioning a moment ago, they had a, a shared message. 
So we see in places like um, Acts 15, which is the Jerusalem Council, is typically uh, no, that chapter is typically called the Jerusalem Council, where the apostles came together to talk about how do we deal with these Gentiles who are coming to faith. And we see Paul and James agree on a shared gospel message. They agree that you know, salvation is by faith alone. They agree that Gentiles don't have to keep the law. And, so, and then they agree that Paul will go out to the Gentile churches and proclaim this gospel message to them. And so they have all this agreement. But then James stayed in Jerusalem for the rest of his life. So as we read the epistle of James, we see it's almost like the Proverbs of the New Testament. It has a very kind of a mm-hmm. Jewish feel to it. I mean, the whole New Testament has a Jewish feel to it. It's a, you know, written by Jewish Christians. But James in particular feels like, the Proverbs of the Old Testament. He's writing to other Jewish Christians who know the law, who probably know the teaching of Jesus. He's correcting misunderstandings. And one of those misunderstandings apparently was that uh, some were teaching kind of an extreme version of justification by faith alone. So it's a faith alone that doesn't require any law keeping, which is different than saying you don't have to keep the law to be saved. That's one thing. But to say, after you're justified, it doesn't matter what you do. It's a whole different animal. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. We're talking about a fascinating book, Paul versus James, what we've been missing in the faith and works debate. Now, after considering their lives, their callings and the mission, uh, the context of their teaching, the next segment of the book um, focuses uh, and turns the attention on their teaching, each of their teachings on justification. So we'll uh, get into that when we return from this quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 50 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Chris Bruno, he's the author of Paul versus James, What We've Been Missing in the Faith and Works Debate. In the first part of the book, he looks at the lives of James and Paul, and it answers some of the questions we might otherwise have about what they're saying that seems to contradict. In the second part of the book, they took a, uh, he takes a look at the letters of James and Paul uh, and uh, their message and mission and uh, their teaching on justification. So again, uh, looking at whether or not there's a clear contradiction or there's harmony in the scriptures, even between James and the Apostle Paul. Well, let's let's go there um, in the second part of the book in which you look at their teachings on justification. Let's start with James, and then if you could uh, contrast that uh, with Paul. Sure. Um, maybe before I even contrast it, I'll, I'll note, note a point of commonality between mm-hmm. the two. It, in that they both cite the Old Testament. They're both quoting the Old Testament, and they're both quoting a specific verse from the Old Testament, Genesis 15, verse 6. And the reason why I bring that up is it's, it's important to notice how they're quoting that text and what they're looking at from the life of Abraham. So Genesis 15, 6 says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So this is the kind of fundamental statement of justification by faith alone in the Old Testament, really the foundation of the the doctrine and the whole rest of Scripture. So Abraham believed God. He believed God's promises. He believed God's covenant promises that he would, uh, through Abraham's family, bless all the nations and all that goes into that. So there's a a real sense in which Abraham had faith in Jesus, how much he knew 
the specifics, things like that, uh, we can debate about. But Abraham had faith in God's promises that culminated with Jesus. And as a result of that, he was declared righteous. He was justified. So James cites that verse in uh, James chapter 2 in his discussion of justification by faith. But he cites it kind of looking back over the whole scope of Abraham's life. He's kind of standing in Genesis 22. Now, Genesis 22 is the, uh, the account of Abraham taking Isaac up on the mountain to sacrifice him, which was stopped at the last minute. But this is pointed to in the Old Testament as the fundamental example of Abraham's obedience. So what James is doing is looking at Genesis 15 through the later uh, obedience of Abraham in Genesis 22. And he's saying that Abraham's righteous status, he was declared righteous. The status was later fulfilled by his obedient actions. So really what James is saying is you cannot have justification by faith apart from good works. So he's teaching justification by faith. He never denies justification by faith. In the, in the way that we understand it, he, he says we're not justified by faith alone in a fake way. We have a wrong understanding of faith. But he doesn't deny justification by faith. He simply says justification by faith results in a status which results in transformed lives. So it's all rooted in our union with Christ. So James is affirming uh, Genesis 15.6. And he's showing the fulfillment, the working out of Genesis 15, 6, later in Abraham's life. Now, when Paul quite quotes that same verse in Romans 4, when he's talking about justification, he's standing at a different place in Abraham's life. He's actually standing in Genesis 15, 6, we can put it that way, looking forward to the rest of Abraham's life. But in Genesis 15, 6, at that moment, when Abraham truly believed God's promises, he had the status righteous. He did nothing to earn that status of justified. The rest of his life bore that out. In fact, later in Romans 4, in Romans 4, uh, 20, Paul says that Abraham grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God. So his life was transformed because of his faith, which is really the same message that James himself is teaching. So they're looking at Genesis 15, 6, but they're using it in slightly different ways. Paul's looking at the beginning of Abraham's life or the beginning of uh, his faith. And James is looking later, you know, decades after Abraham first believed God's promises and saying his justified status will be fulfilled through a transformed life. In the third part of the book, you look at the legacy of James and Paul. In other words, what difference does uh, what they teach make in the lives of the believer and uh, the life of the church? Yeah, that's right. I mean, at at the end of the day, uh, this teaching and our understanding of it should transform the way that we live. Uh, The way we understand faith and works is really important. And, And the the church has uh, struggled with this through the centuries in different ways. While most Christians throughout the centuries have recognized the difference between faith and works and the uh, inseparability of the two, uh, we tend to fall into a ditch on either side. Mm-hmm. Right? We tend to fall into the ditch of uh, an illegalism and works righteousness, saying it's what I do 
that wins favor with God. It's what I do that justifies me. Or we fall into the other ditch, which is as long as I say the right things and kind of give intellectual assent to the right things, then I'm fine, that I can live however I want. And, you know, there, there's variations of those two, but we, we tend to lean toward one of those on one side or the other. And those are exactly the things that Paul and James are arguing against. You write that to misunderstand the New Testament's unified teaching on faith, works, and justification will minimize the seriousness of sin, the transforming power of the gospel, and the very nature of our hope in Christ. This there, uh, this is no light matter. So trying to grasp what's being taught in Scripture in by these two uh, writers is essential to our full appreciation and the fullness of our walk uh, of faith. Absolutely. I mean... We are justified by faith alone, period. We are made right by faith because faith unites us to Christ, and Christ is our only hope. But as a result of that, anybody who is united to Christ will not be left alone. We will be transformed into his image. Um, And the, the whole Bible is crystal clear about both sides of this equation. And if we get one side or the other wrong, then we're, we're in danger of, uh, falling off a cliff to use the, these are more than bitches. They can be cliffs. And if we get it seriously wrong, we could distort the very message of the gospel and our hope of salvation itself. So it's a serious thing. Yes. Again, the title of the book, Paul versus James, what we've been missing on the faith and works debate. The book is published by Moody and I imagine available where books are, are available. Yes, uh, Amazon, the Moody Publishers website. Uh, actually, in just a couple of days, on Friday uh, the 9th, there'll be a 50% off sale on the Moody Publishers website, so my book and others will be available then. Oh, excellent. So listeners do make note of it. Thank you so much for talking with us today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. In his uh, introduction, he writes, In his great wisdom, God gave us both Paul's epistles and the epistle of James. We ignore one or both of these to our great loss. But as we learn to read these letters as part of the glorious, unified teaching about justification, faith, and works, we will walk away with a stronger confidence in the unity of God's revelation in the whole Bible, greater faith in God's promises, and a deeper hope in the transforming work of the Spirit. Isn't that what we are after? Again, the book, Paul versus James, what we've been missing in the faith and works debate, beginning with looking at the lives of these two uh, writers uh, of the scriptures. And I think that helps give us the context that helps to clarify some of our confusion. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Uh, we're going to take a look at uh, some of the news stories of the last several days and um, hope you'll hang with us. Uh, apparently, Joaquin Castro outed one of his own donors in a bid to shame uh, Trump supporters in this political back and forth. Uh, and the out the hue and cry for civility is um, sort of lost in all of this. But Trump donors whose names and employers were posted in a highly controversial tweet 
by Democratic Representative Joaquin Castro blasted the Texas congressman on Wednesday for what they described as a ridiculous stunt and in interviews um, rejected his claim that they were fueling a campaign of hate against Hispanics. Now, the interesting thing was he says he didn't post the names in order that they would be um, uh, boycotted or harassed. or I, I'm not sure what the motivation was if if the laundry list of reasons that uh, were given were not uh, behind the decision. But one of those Trump donors even revealed that he also had been a supporter of local Democratic lawmakers, including Castro himself. It was a bit awkward. Um, Wayne Harewall, the owner of a local real estate development company whose name appeared on a list of uh, Castro shared on Monday night, in a phone interview, um, said that he donated money to Castro's congressional campaign, but he suggested that after he was outed by Castro in a bid to shame Trump supporters, he won't be supporting Castro anymore. And I'm guessing it probably won't make a big difference to his campaign, but a little um, a challenge in outing people for whatever purpose. He says, I was also on a list of people that gave to Castro, and if he dislikes me enough that he wants to put my name out there um uh, against Trump, I'm not going to give money to him any longer. Obviously, Castro feels pretty strongly against me, the donor said. Well, according to the Federal Election Commission records, Harwell donated a thousand, donated rather a thousand dollars to Castro. I'm pretty independent, but I support Trump. Harwell uh, went on to say, well, his name appeared on a list along with 43 other prominent donors in San Antonio who've contributed to President Trump. This year, Harwell contributed a total of $5,600 to Trump's Victory Committee and 2800 to to his uh, campaign. He also donated to Trump's campaign during his first presidential run in 2016. Well, that list was posted on Twitter by Castro, who is the campaign chairman for his brother's 2020 presidential hopeful, Julian Castro. The Texas congressman sought to link them to a campaign of hate in the wake of the mass shootings in El Paso and Dayton. So not only is the president responsible, but those who uh, contribute to his campaign financially, he was suggesting, are also responsible for the decision made by Uh, at least one of the two shooters uh, in uh, this one in El Paso. Now, the other one was from the other end of the ledger, but nobody seems to be talking about uh, about him. Castro tweeted, sad to see so many San Antonians in 2019 maximum donors to Donald Trump. Their contributions are fueling a campaign of hate that labels Hispanic immigrants as invaders. He rejected the allegation, saying, I think some of the Democratic rhetoric is more hateful than some of Trump's rhetoric. I think the San Antonio community needs to take a real deep look at what Castro was doing and why he is doing it. Well, Harwell said Castro was drawing hard lines and said that was not helpful. I hope his constituents remember this. Meanwhile, a local oil business owner and executive, Justin Herricks, whose name was also on Castro's list, called the tactic ridiculous. As a country, as a whole, um, we've got much bigger issues than trying to fight amongst ourselves. I feel pretty good about what I've done and uh, who I support. He went on to say everybody else is pretty open with what they believe uh, in uh, on the other side. So why can't I? What's the problem? Well, Herrick's donated twenty eight hundred dollars to Trump's reelection campaign this year and uh, uh, a large amount to the victory committee. Well, Herrick's went on to deny Castro's claim that Trump donors are complicit in spreading hateful rhetoric against Hispanics, saying probably a good 50 to 70 percent of my employment is Mexican. He says you can't uh, have that uh, argument. He added everyone on that list, I would be safe to say, has done. Uh, way more for Hispanics in this community than Castro ever thought of doing. I don't know the guy, but how many employees does he have compared to all the people on that list? Well, it went back and forth from there, attempting to either shame um, donors 
uh, identify them for um, uh, in order that uh, people reading the tweet would single them out. He wasn't able to pinpoint what his purpose in uh, listing their names might have been. But nonetheless, the back and forth continues in Washington and a little closer to home as well. Well, in other news, the House Judiciary Committee is bent on investigating and ultimately impeaching President Trump is continuing the Democrat campaign against Trump-appointed Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. In an August 6th letter to the National Archives, Chairman Gerald Nadler and one of the subcommittee chairs, Hank Johnson, both Democrats from New York and Georgia, respectively, asked the National Archives to complete its review of certain presidential records related to Justice Brett Kavanaugh's service in the White House from 2001 to 2006 and provide these records to the committee. Well, the question... Why? Well, Nadler and Johnson say the Judiciary Committee not only has investigative and oversight authority with respect to federal courts and judges, but the committee is considering legislative proposals to create a code of conduct for Supreme Court justices. Nadler and Johnson note the Judiciary Committee has reviewed other proposals in recent years regarding transparency in the Supreme Court's proceedings, the adequacy of the justices' financial disclosures, and the circumstances in which justices or judges must disqualify themselves from cases. In other words, having failed to torpedo his nomination, they're now looking for ways to prevent Kavanaugh by disqualifying him from doing his job as a sitting Supreme Court justice. Well, during his confirmation hearing, the Senate Judiciary Committee received only a small fraction of Justice Kavanaugh's White House record, the letter says. But now that the National Archives has finished processing those records, the House Judiciary Committee wants all of them. Specifically, emails sent to or received by Justice Kavanaugh, including emails on which he was uh, a carbon copy or blind carbon copy recipient during the period in which Justice Kavanaugh served as staff secretary, including any documents attached to those emails and a textual record contained in Justice Kavanaugh's office files from the period during which he served as staff secretary. And this is under the Bush administration. Well, the letter asked the National Archives to produce the documents on a rolling basis, beginning with records related to his service in the White House Counsel's Office. It said the committee will work with the archives to provide uh, search terms that will prioritize the production of documents. And if any record is withhold on claims of privilege, please describe each document by date, author, addressee, recipient, title, and subject matter, and set forth the nature of the claimed privilege which res- with respect to each. Well, the final line explains that a Herculean task this will be. We recognize that reviewing the archives and producing these documents is a significant task, and thank you in advance for your efforts, end quote. Well, the House Judiciary Committee has nothing to do with Supreme Court nominations. The task of confirming Supreme Court nominees falls to the Senate Judiciary Committee and then the full Senate, and it's on that basis that President Trump should instruct the National Archives to decline the House Committee's document request this, according to assistant, uh, rather former assistant U.S. Attorney General John Yu, uh, speaking uh, to reporters. I actually hope the president here says, don't produce the documents, Yu says, and he's got a good ally on this, and that's George Washington. This is a principle that our country has lived under for over 200 years. The House wanted to get from George Washington documents about a treaty, and George Washington said no because the House is not involved in ratifying treaties. The same principle, he argues, Mr. Yu, applies here. The president should say, last time I looked at the Constitution, the House is not involved with confirming Supreme court justices. And by the way, in terms of documents provided by Justice Kavanaugh, he apparently provided more documents than the last four or five Supreme Court justice nominees combined. Well, 
Taking a look back, Sarah Palin's defamation lawsuit against the New York Times over an editorial that linked her political action committee to the shooting of former Representative Gabrielle Giffords has been revived after a lower court judge previously had dismissed it. Well, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals ruled this week that Judge Jed Rakoff of the Southern District of New York strayed from procedural norms before tossing out her libel complaint in August, way back in 2017. Rakoff held a hearing to learn more facts about the case before ruling on the Times motion to dismiss when such decisions typically rely solely on what is alleged in court documents. Says Second Circuit Judge John Walker, we find that the district court erred in relying on facts outside the pleadings to dismiss the complaint. Well, the former vice presidential candidate sued the Times for libel after a June 2017 editorial about the shooting of GOP Representative Steve Scalise and others mentioned a map put out years earlier by Sarah Pack that had crosshairs over different Democratic congressional districts. While the map had been used in reference to Obamacare, the editorial connected it to Jared Loeffler's 2011 shooting of Giffords whose district was among the ones identified in the map. Now, the editorial said that Sarah Pack map had Giffords and other Democrats under crosshairs, though the targets were over their district. In discussing the Scalise shooting, the Times said, though there's no sign of indictment uh, as direct as in the Giffords attack, liberals should, of course, hold themselves to the same standard of decency that they ask of the right. No evidence ever emerged to establish that link. In fact, the criminal investigation of Loeffner indicated that his animosity toward Representative Giffords had had arisen before Sarah Pack published the map. But never mind, the Times published a correction after receiving backlash for the editorial, noting that there was no link between the map and the shooting. But according to Sarah Palin, the damage had already been done. And now, apparently, a court is reviving that challenge against the New York Times. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, a sixth grade male student known as John Doe was punished by an assistant principal in an Ohio school district for using the male pronoun he in reference to a male student boy A, and for respectfully stating his opinion that he is a boy, not a girl, based on boy A's biological sex. Well, the assistant principal told John that there would be consequences for his statements, and she removed him from P.E. class for the day as part of his punishment. Sixth grade. Well, after Liberty Council intervened, the school district claimed the P.E. class removal was not formal disciplinary action and said no record of it exists, but conceded that neither Liberty Council student client nor others would be subject to discipline for expressing respectful disagreement on any topic, nor for using accurate pronouns in referring to students and that teachers would not coerce any student to use a particular pronoun. John's parents were satisfied with the result. Well, school administrators, including the assistant principal, the art teacher, and the music teacher, all referred to boy A, who publicly claimed to be a girl, by female pronouns, such as she and her. Administrators told other students that boy A is a girl, and that the students had to call him by female pronouns and consider him female. Well, during a May 2019 Uh, Several girls were talking in art class about boy A taking girl hormones and eventually having, well, surgery, and that this would make him a girl. Liberty Council's client, John, who considers boy A to be a friend, politely disagreed and corrected their error that boy A is a boy, not a girl. Well, two other boys also agreed with John, John Doe, that sex is biologically determined at birth. You are what you are born with. 
Well, the assistant principal then called John, John Doe, to the office and said, you can have your own beliefs, but boy A wants to be called a girl and there might be consequences. Well, the assistant principal accordingly prohibited John Doe from participating in P.E. that day and made him sit in the principal's office. John reported to Liberty Council, through his parents, of course, that the other boys received in-school suspension and a one-day-out-of-school suspension. Well, the assistant principal contacted John Doe's mother and told her that he received a lesser punishment of being suspended from gym class because he did not believe that John was bullying and that uh, he happened to be there with two other boys. But he still made those statements. Subsequently, John's parents contacted Liberty Council for assistance. Well, after investigating the facts, the uh, Liberty Council requested that the district confirm removal of any record or of discipline from John's record, confirm that no student would be punished for expressing respectful disagreement on the subject, uh, claims uh, by other students, and that no student uh, would be punished or subjected to official coercion for using pronouns consistent with one's biological sex. Well, the school district responded that the P.E. class removal was not formal disciplinary action, that John's record does not contain any record of disciplinary action, that the Board of Education does not discipline students for expressing respectful disagreement on any topic, and that the Board of Education does not discipline students for using certain pronouns in reference to students or coerce any student to use a particular pronoun, and that no student would be required to use false pronouns. Well, all of that did actually happen. But apparently they're saying it won't happen again. Sixth grader sees a boy, calls him a boy, and that somehow was an infraction. So as the new school year begins, be wary of some of the challenges that your sons and daughters might face. Well, in other news, Puerto Rico's Supreme Court on Wednesday overturned the swearing of Pedro Pierluisi as the island's governor less than a week ago, clearing the way for Justice Secretary Wanda uh, Vasquez to take up the post after weeks of turmoil. The unanimous ruling said uh, that the na- duly sworn in governor must step aside immediately. Well, the high court's decision uh, can't be appealed, was expected to unleash new demonstrations and deepen the tumult because many Puerto Ricans have said they don't want Vasquez as the governor. She was very close to the governor who recently resigned. It is concluded that the swearing in as governor of Honorable Pedro Pierce Lucy, uh, named Secretary of State in recess, is unconstitutional, the court said in a brief statement. Well, after that ruling, Vasquez says she would step in as governor. At one point earlier, she had said she didn't want the job. Well, Puerto Rico needs assurance and stability. Our actions are aimed um, uh, and will be aimed toward the end um, of the, the conflict, it's kind of awkwardly written the quote here, and will always uh, come first, referring, uh, referring to Puerto Rico. Well, um, Pierce Lucy was uh, said previously that he would respect whatever ruling was made. Shortly after it was announced, someone yelled through the loudspeaker near the governor's mansion that he was out. The Constitution of Puerto Rico should be respected. Well, he was appointed Secretary of State by then-Governor Ricardo um, Rosselli while legislators were in recess and only the House approved his nomination. Puerto Rico Senate sued to challenge his legitimacy as governor, arguing that its approval was also necessary, and the Supreme Court decided in favor of the Senate. Well, uh, now the woman who is likely to take his place um, had been uh, opposed by many in Puerto Rico as well as being a confederate of the uh, now disgraced governor. So the back and forth in Puerto Rico continues.
Hmm. Well, in other news, the University of Florida has agreed to pay a conservative student group $66,000 and amend the school policy to allow conservative groups to have access to more financial resources. The Young Americans for Freedom chapter at University of Florida, they filed a lawsuit against the school in December. They alleged it violated students' First and Fourteenth Amendment rights. Well, the lawsuit stemmed from the university's... Um, uh, designating the chapter as a non-budgeted organization, meaning it would be forced to petition the school for funding for each event it seeks to host. In addition, the policy disqualified the chapter from being able to use student activity fees to go toward uh, speakers' attendance fees. Well, the University of Florida realized that YAF, the Young American Foundation, was taking them to court. They weren't... um, Uh, Going to win, Young Americans for Freedom spokesman Spencer Brown uh, says it was very smart for them to recognize their policy was flawed the way it was uh, set up and that the conservative students at YAF chapter were getting the rough end of the deal by being labeled a non-budget student organization. Brown went on to say that we had the emails and facts on our side. We had the Constitution. It was just um, it just wasn't worth it for them to try to prove that they were doing uh, doing this for some other reason. There never was a reason for violating the Constitution. Well, according to the YAF spokes uh, spokesperson, the Young Americans for Freedom and other conservative student chapters all across the country feel emboldened to challenge campus administrators um, over free speech issues after um, the president signed an executive order in March, which connected college funding to uh, policies that protect free speech. Uh, said the former University of Florida chairwoman, Sarah Long, uh, this settlement is a great victory for all students at the University of Florida and perhaps elsewhere. The university should be a marketplace of ideas where students can decide for themselves which ideas have merit. Moving forward, our chapter is excited to host leading conservative speakers on campus. Blake Meadows, legal counsel for Alliance Defending Freedom that represented the students, said this. University of Florida, Florida administrators are limiting Members' uh, First Amendment freedoms by forcing them to pay into a system that funds opposing viewpoints. Worse yet, the university forces YAF to play an arbitrary, complex game of shoots and ladders in the funding process, wherein the student group can continually be sent back to the beginning of the game at the sole discretion of the student government. The university also changed its rules to single out and disqualify the conservative group from receiving funding for speakers' fees and honoraria, making it even more difficult for the group to express its viewpoint on campus. Young Americans for Freedom has hosted its 41st National Conservative Student Conference the past few days. Chapters from campuses all across the country came to listen to conservative speakers ranging from Senator Ted Cruz of Texas to Vice President Mike Pence. And now the university uh, cannot discriminate against them in deciding whether or not that can um, uh, be uh, that student funding rather can be applied. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. When we come back, we'll talk about Amazon's home surveillance company, Ring, and the fact that they're teaching law enforcement how to convince residents to share camera footage with them. They're coaching uh, law enforcement on how to obtain surveillance footage without a warrant. More on that and much more when we return. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Uh, 34 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Well, the police partner with uh, Ring, you know, that's that 
doorbell that allows you to see who's coming and going from your home. Amazon's home surveillance camera company. I didn't realize that was Amazon. I don't have one, and I'm not interested in getting one, so I suppose I didn't need to know. But they get access to the Law Enforcement Neighborhood Portal. It's an interactive uh, map that allows officers to request footage directly from camera owners. Now, that might be a good thing, but I think people need to know. People don't, or rather police don't need a warrant to request this footage, but they do need permission from camera owners. So... You don't need a warrant, but you need to say, yeah, you're welcome to the footage. Emails and documents obtained by the motherboard uh, reveal that people aren't always willing to provide police with their Ring camera footage. Uh, the Ring works with law enforcement, gives them advice on how to persuade people to give them that footage in the event uh, that a crime has been committed. Emails obtained from police departments in Maywood, New Jersey, and from the police departments of Bloomingfield, uh, New Jersey, which are also posted by Wired, show that Ring coaches police on how to obtain the footage, and the company provides them with templates for requesting footage, which they... Um, don't need a court warrant to do. They suggest that police officers post um, often on neighbors' Ring free neighborhood watch app, where Ring camera owners have the option of sharing their camera footage with one another and perhaps with law enforcement as well. Now, I'm not really uh, in favor of, for my own household, I mean, I appreciate that other people do, but I'm not really in favor of having my whole house wired. Uh, with the uh, concern that, you know, things can be hacked and what can be a benefit can also end up having another side to it. But for people who have those ring uh, systems where you can, from any remote location, see who's at your front door, I suppose it's very useful. And for law enforcement, if they're trying to trace, for example, the uh, movement of uh, someone who's committed a crime at a home nearby. It provides them with perhaps information on what direction they might have come from or uh, returned to. So I suppose it's all very useful. And Amazon is helping to coach law enforcement on how to make you more likely to make that information available. Well, here at home, the out-of-pocket cost for Republican senators who walked out of the Oregon Capitol to kill the climate change bill in June just went down significantly. A, um, a political action committee donated enough money to cover the majority of the fines for each of these 11 senators. The Stand with Our Senators Political Action Committee on uh, the 30th of last month contributed $3,000 to each of the campaign committees of the 11 senators involved in that walkout, according to the state campaign finance records. Um, that's most of the $3,500 that each Senate leaders uh, is going to have to pay. Uh, 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 Republicans were fined for missing seven days of work near the end of the uh, this year's legislative session. The fines accrued at $500 a day per absent senator. They uh, chose not to go to the uh, uh, to the Capitol on principle. It cost them financially. Well, the Political Action Committee appears not to have raised enough money to cover the entirety of the senator's fines, but $3,000 each for a $3,500 fine for each is pretty good. Uh, it reported raising nearly $42,000, spending $34,000. Uh, leaving just 5000 on hand um, as of yesterday. Well, the largest donor of the Political Action Committee was the 2018 gubernatorial candidate, Newt Bueller, who chipped in $5,000. Other top donors included um, individuals and companies in the construction and logging industries. Um, Warfield Limited with 2000 More than $8,000 of that money raised came from small donations of $100 or less, believing that the... Um, Republican senators who walked out of the Oregon Capitol to kill that bill uh, were, in fact, um, walking out on principle. They supported. 
And demonstrators who want to commit acts of violence or vandalism during a gathering planned on the 17th of this month in Portland should expect to be met with the full force of the law. That, according to Mayor Ted Wheeler and Police Chief Danielle Outlaw, warning earlier this week. Well, in an interview at City Hall, the Oregonian uh, talked with the pair who uh, collectively led Portland's police force, voiced their toughest stance yet against people using the cloak of free speech as a pretext to brawl on Portland city streets. Now, talk is cheap. We'll see what happens when this next brouhaha arises. Well, Wheeler stated repeatedly 18 times in all that he rejects the violence and subversion of free speech perpetrated by demonstrators regardless of their politics. He promised a zero-tolerance policy, saying anyone who breaks the law during the demonstration next week should expect swift action by the police, and he raised the prospect of mass arrests. He indicated an extra-large presence of law enforcement officers from outside agencies as well as the Portland Police Bureau. They're going to be on hand to ensure what happens. And the mayor issued a stern repudiation of would-be instigators. We don't want you, he said, uh, adding that if you do come, we will be ready for you. Well, that echoes a message that was delivered by the police chief uh, who said, don't come. We don't want you here. I don't care what side you're on. Well, this is a new position held by city leaders. Right-wing activists from around the country have indicated they plan to hold an in-domestic terrorism gathering on the 17th at Tom McCall Waterfront Park in an attempt to build on public opposition to the self-described anti-fascist group known as Antifa. The event has uh, not been granted a permit. I'm not sure one has been requested to set. Uh, it's set to take place weeks after uh, the last event in, involving Antifa that brought the Portland area so much national attention. Well, supporters of the August gathering have spoken openly on the Internet about bringing weapons to Portland and their desire to exterminate Antifa members. Portland Antifa group Rose City Antifa has issued a call for its supporters to defend the city. The truth is, we don't really want either of them here defending one another or the city. Such rhetoric has led Wheeler, the mayor, and others, the police chief, to assume the demonstration will turn violent. In response, uh, both promise a different approach and larger turnout by police than shown in the June demonstrations and some earlier dueling rallies. City officials have been working with federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies to secure the personnel and the equipment necessary necessary rather to respond. Well, as for whether uh, they're going to ask the governor for assistance from the Oregon National Guard, the mayor said... That step was one more potential tool in the toolkit, but declined to say if he would request that aid for the city. The mayor said it will be obvious on the 17th that the city's police force is well-resourced and prepared. Now, the question hasn't been resourced or prepared. The question is whether or not there is a willingness to act, and that comes from the top down. The police will be there. They'll be resourced. They'll be prepared, we're told. But will they respond? If police officers are quick to intervene, in most cases, when protesters turn violent, it would represent a shift from prior practices. Video evidence, eyewitness accounts and news reports on numerous demonstrations here in the Portland area over the last 30 months show police officers have at times allowed demonstrators to come to blows with nearly uh, near impunity. And that's what we have witnessed. On Monday, the mayor and the police chief strongly rejected claims that police have failed to act against protesters acting violently, even though we have evidence that they have failed to act against protesters acting violently, said the police chief. If something happens, it's not that we stand there, which is precisely what they did last time something happened. Uh, She said, pushing back against what she said was a misperception that we just stand there with our hands in our pockets and allow these things to occur. 
well, I don't know where their hands were, but they didn't stop the violence that we witnessed and garnered so much national attention last time. Well, the chief explained that the matter is not as simple as whether to intervene or not. A complication that's um, that higher staffing levels for the August protest is designed to address. Well, officers are sometimes told not to leave their posts to chase after people because officers needed to, to be where they were posted. The, the police chief outlaw said lawbreakers are sometimes difficult for police to identify because their faces are covered and victims do not cooperate with detectives. Well, that um, suggests that responding at the time that the offenses are occurring at the scene would be the way to uh, mitigate uh, future acts of violence and to hold individuals responsible. But again, the mayor said Portland police officers have always done what they can do to bring justice to people bludgeoned at protests, violence which the officers themselves are vulnerable to. Their job is to enforce the law, not be martyrs, he said. Regardless, the police chief said the police will not be able to curtail all violence at Portland demonstrations simply by making mass arrests. It's not something that the police are going to um, uh, arrest their way out of. Uh, it's never going to be that way, the chief went on to say. So I think there is a mistake in putting the onus solely on the police bureau as the ones that are going to stop and fix the whole thing. Well, I don't know about stopping and fixing the whole thing, but um, witnessing acts of violence and failing to respond needs to be more carefully explained if we are to have confidence in the leadership that gives the marching orders to law enforcement who are at the scene. Well, the mayor said officials are exploring a proposal raised by uh, the chief of police to bar demonstrators from wearing masks, a practice which the police bureau has said hinders arrests and prosecutions. Uh, Wheeler made no comment about the merit of the idea, but said it may not be lawful under the uh, unusually strong free speech protections enshrined in Oregon's Constitution. So we can count on the fact that there's going to be an event uh, coming up on the 17th of this month where you have members of the Proud Boys uh, men's group, seems like an oxymoron, led by former InfoWars reporter Joe Biggs, uh, meeting in Portland at the waterfront for a rally that they describe as an end to domestic terrorism, uh, referring to Antifa. Antifa, on the other hand, suggesting that they are going to protect the city. No one has requested them to do so by showing up. Clashes will very likely ensue. So let's continue to watch uh, what the uh, mayor and the chief of police here in the city of Portland uh, say they are preparing to do in response to what will very likely be a repeat of what we've seen far too many times over the last 30 months. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we want to uh, give you a couple of things. Uh, one is a, a list of apps that uh, law enforcement are saying parents need to be aware of to protect their sons and daughters. So we'll give uh, that to you. And the latest on um, uh, detection for Alzheimer's disease. Two very different things, but I think you'll find them rather useful. 46 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. A couple of things I want to remind you of and perhaps inform you for the first time. Before kids go back to school, police around the country are reminding parents they need to be wary of some of the apps that are available to them and, in fact, have named 15 that parents should look out for uh, on their kids' phones. Well, recently there was an arrest of 25 men in Florida. They allegedly tried to have... um, 
inappropriate relations with children, and that's prompted sheriffs there and around the country to issue another app warning for parents. Well, the arrests happened on the 17th through the 20th of July after suspects responded to Internet ads, online apps, and social media sites, according to the Sarasota County Sheriff's Office. Well, during his press conference, this was last week, the sheriff, he listed 15 apps uh, as ones that parents need to know about. Six of them were used by suspected predators who were recently arrested. So these are um, important to know. The first is Meet Me. Now, that just on its on its face tells you probably all you need to know. But the first uh, app is called Meet Me. It's an app where teens can easily be in contact with users much older than they are with an emphasis on dating. So Meet Me, that's an app you need to make sure your kids don't have on their phone. Another is WhatsApp and Snapchat. Um, they're for messaging, but what you should know is that teens can send unlimited messages, have video chats, and even share their live location with other users, and people may not even know. So while these are not nefarious on their face, they can be misused. Then there is Scout. It's smell, spelled like snout, S-K-O-U-T. It's a flirting app that used... Um, It's used to meet and chat with new people. Teens and adults are in different groups, but ages aren't verified, so you can be wherever you want to be. TikTok is another. It's used for sharing users-created videos that can obtain bad words, even adult content. Then there's Badoo and Bumble. They're dating apps for adults, but teens can still find their way uh, onto the app and join. Grindr is uh, geared toward the LGBTQ community. It allows users to share photos and meet up based on a phone's GPS locations. So, again, your location is known by other users. Kick, which is spelled K-I-K, is specifically for kids, but anyone can join, anybody can contact or direct messages to your children on that app. LiveMe is a live streaming app, but you don't know who's watching and your kid's location is revealed on that one. There is Hala, uh, H-O-L-L-A. It's all about connecting strangers around the world through video chat, enough said. There's Whisper. It's a social confessional where kids can remain anonymous but still share their feelings and it can reveal your child's location for a meetup. There's Ask FM. It encourages people to allow anonymous users to ask them questions, which opens the door for online bullying and other things. There's Hot or Not. It rates users on attractiveness. There's no age verification, and users can send each other messages. And lastly, there's Calculator, and then the symbol for percent. Um, uh, these are apps, uh, they have several secret apps within this configuration, apparently, that allows kids to hide their photos, videos, even browser history. So calculator with a percentage um, symbol is one that tells you there are things being hidden. Well, Common Sense Media is a good website to keep handy. Again, that's Common Sense Media. It gives parents a breakdown on what they should know about each and every app out there, and it provides advice on monitoring your kids' apps. Unfortunately, the Internet allows for easy and anonymous access to children by strangers who are hiding behind a computer name um, and a computer screen, according to Sheriff Tom Knight from Florida, warning parents all across the country. Again, consumer, or rather Common Sense Media is a good website for parents to keep handy to make sure what uh, their kids are doing falls within your uh, uh, your approval. Researchers at the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis claim to have determined a method for diagnosing Alzheimer's dementia. 
via a blood test, possibly years before the brain scan would be able to detect the disease. Now, reporting on their findings in the medical journal Neurology, researchers say that the test would analyze the levels of specific amyloid proteins believed to be an indicator of Alzheimer's. Now, together with other factors, including age and genetics, the researchers say their test is 94% accurate. Would you want to know some 20 years before symptoms begin to present themselves? And is there something you can do to prevent those symptoms from moving forward? That's the, those are the questions that I would have. Well, in addition to more accurate diagnoses, the findings could mean a breakthrough in treatment options, uh, and that may come sooner than later, and more study subjects would be available for testing at earlier stages of the disease, according to the study's senior author. Now, right now, uh, they screen people for clinical trials with brain scans, which is time-consuming, it's expensive. Enrolling uh, participants takes years, according to uh, three of the neurological um, Professors who involved who are involved in this study and uh, who screen thousands of people a month. That means that we can um, be more efficient, enroll uh, participants in clinical trials, which will help us find treatments faster, could have an enormous impact on the cost of the disease, as well as the human suffering that goes with it. They say reducing the number of PET scans could enable us to conduct twice as many uh, clinical trials for the same amount of uh, time and money. Well, researchers added that the early diagnosis of the disease is critical for its treatment for those who don't have immediate access to PET scans or whose initial um, PET scans come back negative for cognitive ailments may greatly benefit from this blood test. So things are moving forward. Reducing the numbers uh, will enable them to... um, to treat twice as many in the same amount of time and money. Something to remember about that. Anyway, I thought it was rather interesting and good news. Well, coming up tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Stephen Kello. He is a a Ph.D. and author of Walk with Jesus on Campus, How to Care for Your Soul During College. The book is published by Moody, and it addresses the challenge of maintaining one's connection with the body of believers, maintaining community while in church, and to uh, maintain a strong walk uh, with Jesus, as the title would suggest. So we'll be talking with him about that as we anticipate school starting for uh, college and university students uh, fairly soon. So that's coming up tomorrow. And then on Friday, a little bit up in the air, so we'll have to let you know tomorrow uh, what uh, what will be coming up. Uh, by the way, we're going to continue giving our four-pack of tickets to the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. This happens to be the last week that you can enjoy a $5 discount on every ticket you purchase um, through the uh, Singing Christmas Tree. Um, the dates this year are November 22nd, 23rd, 24th, And then the following weekend, the 30th, excuse me, the 29th, the 30th, and 1st of December. Now, you might notice that it starts... Uh, a week earlier than was uh, has been the traditional date, but because of a accident of the calendar, that's the way it, it begins. The weekend before Thanksgiving and the weekend of Thanksgiving. Now, the Portland Singing Christmas Tree is featuring 26 new songs. Miss America 2002 will be back. Katie Harmon, Timothy Greenidge will be singing. There will be the 300-voice choir that you have come to know and love or might need to be introduced to, a cinematic nativity and the Jefferson Dancers. It's going to be an incredible a performance. I might get to do a song or two as well. And again, November 22nd, 23rd, 24th, the first weekend, and then the 29th, 30th, and December 1st, the following weekend for Portland's Singing Christmas Tree. The tradition continues at the Keller Auditorium. So we'll be giving a family four pack of tickets, and that's coming up um, as well. So keep your ears open uh, over the next two days.
as we'll give away our final family four packs. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program and Clark Hilton for engineering. Thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. If you didn't have an opportunity to hear my conversation with uh, Dr. Chris Bruno, author of Paul versus James, what we've been missing in the faith and works debate, you can always go to our podcast, go to kpdq.com, and there you can hear that interview and, for that matter, others that we've done here on the program. So check that out. Hey, want to hope you have a great evening, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Good night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.